It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live from the Edinburgh Fringe. Please, welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Give yourselves a big whoop. We want a big whoop. That's good. God, we've been on good 30, whooping. not even 30 seconds and you're rabble-rousing I am rabble-rousing. Yeah. Uh, I thank- love the Edinburgh crowd. They're so nice. They're so whoopful. He, you are whoopful, but he, you understand that. He's just flattering you here. You know, just so I don't say that to all the crowds. <laughs> I mean, you do say it to most of them. Though, yeah, well, maybe fair. that is true, actually. Yeah. Shall I talk about what we're going to talk about yes. today? So we're talking about how big data can be used for good purposes. We've done quite a lot on our podcast for those who... Uh, listen about the power of Facebook and Uber and all of that and, you know, the problems with that. But we wanted to sort of do a cheerful version of this. Uh, and I'm delighted that we've got Barry Aitken from the University of Edinburgh and Anna Schneider from Edinburgh Napier University, who are two people who know lots about how big data can be used for good purposes and also some of the dangers and, you know, what the public kind of think and what the public want and how we kind of move forward. And I kind of can't help instinctively thinking that there must be a lot of untapped power that is not being used in terms of what it can do to cure disease, cancer, all of those, you know, things that, that artificial intelligence can potentially do. Uh, and then after that, joining us to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful and give us her reasons to be cheerful. We, we were supposed to be joined by comedian Matt Ford. His voice has got a bit iffy and we thought, well, who else can do an excellent, if not even better, yeah. impersonation of Ed? It's Aisha Hazarika, yeah. who has got a, a one-woman show here in Edinburgh, which is fantastic. You saw it the other night. Yeah. And she's going to be coming on, ostensibly to talk about her reasons to be cheerful, but what it will end up being is her just taking the piss out of Ed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're, we're all looking minutes. forward to. Right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome uh, Barry Aitken and Anna Schneider to the stage? Are we moving on? 
There is all this data being collected uh, about us, but I think it would be quite good to get from Vari and from Anna just... We'll go into the sort of dystopia in a minute, but tell us something to be cheerful about big data and what it can achieve. Vari, yeah. do you want to start? Um, yeah, so I work in the medical school at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and certainly in the area of medical research, there's a lot to be cheerful about. There's already... A, ever-increasing amounts of medical research that are conducted using data, patient data, and other forms of data. And this is incredible research, because it, it, this research doesn't require patients to, you know, volunteer to take part in clinical trials, doesn't need them to, you know, give up their time or donate tissue samples or body parts. You know, it, it uses data that's already routinely being collected, um, and it enables huge amounts of research to be undertaken to understand, you know, patterns in health and well-being, to understand factors that are impacting on health, and, and look at the connections between different areas of health. So it's really, really exciting. So it has a lot of potential. Absolutely, yeah. And Anna, what about you? Yes, I'm doing similar things, but more sort of from a social science, social care perspective, linking big data to more more social um, data. And I have to say, sort of starting off as an academic, uh, looking at survey data, I was always stunned that there are so many questions that I can't answer with that data. And having started working with administrative data uh, with these big data sets, it just opens up completely new doors into uh, research on minority groups that I wouldn't have been able to zoom into beforehand. And on the other side, a lot of this big data research is, or this big data is quite newly available for academics. Um, census data, for example, Scottish census data, we're the, the first project that is working with that. So there are new doors opened uh, in, in terms of knowledge, but there are also new doors opened in terms of working together with the Scottish government and the NHS and maybe coming up with a better research program to really help them. That's really helpful as a sort of introduction. Vari, say a little bit more about what you're doing and sort of where it might lead. What's the sort of utopia here? Because we should mention that you're doing a show here at the Fringe. I am, yes. Both which, of you, I think. Which sort of looks at what the, what the future of visiting a doctor could look like. Yeah, um, so my show is called Dr. Google Will See You Now. Um, and in Dr. Google Will See You Now, I'll be looking ahead to the year 2030 and a, a vision of, the, of what the future might look like if Google was running the Google Health Service. Um, so I'll be looking at the ways that people's data could be used in healthcare and health research in the future and also the way that artificial intelligence can play a role in, in healthcare and health research in the future. The research I do you know, um, normally is, is looking at social and ethical issues around the ways that data are used in, in health research. There's a lot of health research that is being conducted using this data. So often that's data within the NHS, so different NHS data sets. Um, and there are examples of, say, diabetes registries being linked with cancer registries, looking at connections between the different conditions and, and between medications. There's also, as Anna said, there's, there's examples of where NHS data is linked with, say, public sector data sets to look at connections between say social care, education, welfare, and, and, and look at health outcomes and how those different aspects of people's lives connect to each other. So data is, is used um, increasingly often for research purposes. Um, of course, it's also used for, for patients' care and for, for treatment. Um, and it's also used in anonymous forms for you know, audit and planning of services. Health data plays a lot of different purposes in, in relation to healthcare and, and health services. And what role will sort of artificial intelligence play, do you think, in the next sort of 10, 20 years around sort of the medical uh, interactions that people have. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's huge potential there. Um, and probably everybody's familiar with the, you know, the headlines and the news reports about the potential of artificial intelligence. There's a lot of, um, I would think, fairly sensational headlines of suggesting that artificial intelligence might replace doctors and um, having a really transformative role in relation to healthcare. 
But I think actually there's, there's more, maybe more realistic things that artificial intelligence might do. So you can have artificial intelligence um, chatbots to provide online consultation services, which for some patients is very relevant and, and, and a very positive experience. Would you, as somebody who goes to the doctor a lot... Uh, we glass houses. How were, yeah, that's true. How we had a doctor on the podcast recently, and Ed was trying to get her to look down his throat. Yeah, she didn't torch. want to, actually. Uh, um, but how would you feel about a chatbot? Well, I've been to the doctor before now, and the doctor has Googled my symptoms. So it's sort of an, an evolution of that, in a way, yeah. right? But would you so be happy to talk would to... Would it be something like NHU? I mean, we're thinking about the 111 service that we use. A first step might be to interact with a chatbot. Yeah, and it could be something like that. And also as a role, potentially, in, in, say, triage. So we know that... Um, about 20% of GP appointments are for things which could be treated at home. So there's a great possibility to use um, artificial intelligence or online services as a kind of first point of contact into healthcare. So you might um, use a, an online triage service to find out, you know, is it, do you need to have a GP appointment or is this perhaps someone you can treat at home or, or in a, a local pharmacy? Um, and that has the potential to empower patients to be more in control of their health and to know what to do, um, but also to relieve some of the, the burden on, on healthcare and, and, and be more efficient for a more efficient health service. But why is it that whenever you Google your symptoms, you end up thinking you've got terminal disease? I mean, that <laughs> is, I mean, maybe that's just me and Jeff, but I mean, isn't that part, I mean, <laughs> Presumably yeah. they'd be more sophisticated than I, Google. Yeah, I think there's work to be done, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there is that possibility. What, what, you know, what we say that it could be done to, you know, relieve pressure on the health service, but if it actually creates a lot of false positives, and obviously it's going to have to be, you know, cautious, it's going to err on the side of caution. So that does that then create. Is, is any country started to go down this road or is it sort of still? To replace sort of a national health service. Oh, oh, no. No, nope, that's going to. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no. Um, but there are, there are services available. There are chatbots. You know, there's, there's online. Um, health consultations that you can take. There's, there's online healthcare providers that you could use um, that you would pay for to, you know, to yeah. have a, an online consultation. Um, it's not mainstream, and I think that there's a lot of issues around you know, um, equity of accessibility if that were to become mainstream. So there are examples that you can find, but it's not, it's not as developed yet. And am I right also in saying that on the sort of experiments that have been done so far, the evidence suggests that if you can get so-called deep learning using the power of computer power and internet power that is used for other purposes to apply itself to things like cancer, it could be incredibly powerful, more correct in a diagnosis than a doctor, you know, more powerful at identifying causes. And it sort of feels like that logic... I know Theresa May was talking about this recently. It feels like logically... You know, there should there should be enormous power to cure some of the worst diseases yeah. that we face. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure about the in terms of the curing, but in, certainly in terms of diagnosis. Diagnosis, there's, yeah. Um, yeah, there's some really, really amazing examples of where artificial intelligence has been used in, in um, to develop diagnostic tools. So, in terms of looking at um, at scans of, of or yeah. where people are looking to detect um, cancer. More accurate than doctors. Yeah, um, more accurate or, or at least as accurate. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's really important because there's a great deal of kind of human judgment that goes into when you're looking at a scan and you're trying to define, locate cancerous tissue, but then also you know, grade it. And, and, and different doctors will come up with different grading. And, and there's a kind of, it's, it's a lot of human judgment. There's positives and negatives around it. Whereas artificial intelligence can, can based on looking at, millions and millions of these scans and then and come up with an approach which is um, yeah I wonder more accurate but certainly faster um, and more efficient and is it being done 
There are um, slowly. Yeah, there are experiments in this, and, and so the, I mean, you may have seen in the headlines DeepMind's involvement in processing NHS patient data. That's Google DeepMind. Google yeah. DeepMind, yeah, um, and they've developed diagnostic tools for looking at patient scans, um, and also diagnostic tools for um, detecting eye disease for looking at scans of um, retinal scans, retinal Im- imaging, uh, and there's some really positive examples of how this can be used to to very efficiently detect um, and, and and diagnose conditions. Okay, so so um, we'll come on to the sort of problems in a minute, but but Anna, do you want to say something about your work? Because that is at the is that you've got particular expertise and a particular area you work on, which is to do with end of life care, and you're doing a particular sort of experimental set of work in Scotland. Do you want to say something about that? We have this huge data set, uh, which really deserves the name big, looking at everyone who died within a year of the last two censuses, so we can uh, compare what's happening over time, we can zoom into specific patient groups to find out how do we actually spend the last year of life, uh, what kind of health services are we using, where do we eventually pass away, how do we live in the meantime, do we live alone, do we live with, potentially with an informal carer, um, so there are a lot of questions that we can answer um, with the help of this data set around end of And the key thing is that you're matching up. Just explain this for the sort of technically ignorant like me uh, and Jeff. You're matching up uh, census data with NHS data, is that right? Yes, so that's not me personally for uh, yeah. data security yeah. reasons. It's a third party who's doing that yeah. for us. But yes, so there's, they do what is called a probability match because um, the NHS data does not have any kind of unique identifier that uh, is the same as uh, the census. So they need to use some personal information that I'm never privy to, such as um, your name, your address, your date of birth, and that way they match up your NHS records with your census records. And what might that allow you to do? Um, well, all the kind of research that I just uh, already talked about. So, for example, one um, paper we were w- working on is uh, to do with care homes and how they have changed over time. So, there's quite a bit of a difference between 2001, 2011 as to who is actually, who, who what people are using care homes. Um, so, you can very clearly see that they are fo- focusing in more and more on end of life care because there is a need for it. Another thing that we are looking at is uh, people with learning disabilities um, and how do they experience end-of-life care. They're a very small minority group. We wouldn't be able to pick them up with any other kind of data. That's the only way we can really say something about them and therefore maybe um, help improve the services for them. Should we talk a little bit about the challenges then? Because this sounds quite potentially positive, but there are, both with the public and sort of beyond the public, big challenges of this. Yeah. You've done research, haven't you, Vary, on the pub, on the public's response and willingness on this? Yeah, that's right. So a lot of my research has, has focused on your, um, your public engagement work around this, around duties of data in health research and looking at how people feel about this. Um, and what we find very consistently is that largely there's there's generally widespread public support for health research, and that includes health research, which is which is conducted through linkage of data and, and analysis of, of big data sets. Um, but that support is never unconditional. So it's really important that we don't take public support for granted, and we focus on the conditions that are needed to maintain public support going on, going forward. Um, and some of those conditions relate to governance mechanisms, so ensuring that confidentiality is protected, ensuring that there are adequate safeguards in place to protect against misuse or abuse of data. Um, but a lot of what we find is that the key condition really is needing to understand 
why we're doing this and what it's all about. So needing to be confident that it's going to lead to public benefits or it's going to lead to benefits for, for patients, or patient groups, um, and that it's going to have real value for society. And I think that's what we really need to focus on and, and, and the ways that we're doing that. And the private sector? Because your research also, I know, touched on the role of the private sector. One of the Google DeepMind yeah. got itself into trouble because of the way that some patient data was being used. I mean, yeah. this is a dilemma, isn't it? Because lots of this information is being collected by private companies. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think that's, I mean, we've already mentioned Google's deep mind, but the, the, there is increasing involvement of commercial organizations or private sector organizations in research processes and, 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 in, and in services that relate to healthcare. Um, it's not necessarily a problem. And certainly in, in the research that I've done, we find that there's... Whilst people are, have a lot of questions about private sector involvement, and there are concerns about you know, commercial interests and, and, and why that data is being used, but if that research leads to public benefits, if some profit goes alongside that, it's not necessarily a problem. So the, the question really is how we can be sure that it's primarily motivated by bringing about public benefits, it's primarily about having benefits for health and benefits for patients. And if there's some profit alongside it, well, maybe that's necessary to bring about the research and ensure that we that it gets done and the data is used in those ways. Is there information that companies like Google or Facebook already have on us that if it was opened up would have health benefits? Yeah, and I mean Google and Facebook, they, they already do their own research using their data and, and, and health-related research. Um, That's why they sell to women who are pregnant. Yeah, exactly. They sell stuff to women who are pregnant even almost before they know they're pregnant. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Or kind um, of confirmed. Yeah, um, so they, I mean, Google have ways of, of, of tracking where there's going to be um, outbreaks or pandemics through, through tracking search terms that are into the symptoms that are into the search terms on Google. And they've been incredibly effective at um, identifying and predicting outbreaks or pandemics um, and locating them. Um, Facebook famously conducted research altering the mood statuses of, of Facebook posts and, and looking at how it affected um, Facebook users' posts and f- affected their moods. So it's kind of psychological behavioral research that they're conducting themselves. Um, and so there's a great deal of research that goes on. And I think there's huge potential for the, the data that is collected there. So if, if we, and I, and I think this is a, a massive if, but if we had access to that kind of Google data or Facebook data and were able to link that up with health data and social data, imagine the kind of trends that we could find and the insights that we could uncover. It would be amazing. Now, there's two roving mics. Your questions about data that you want answered, please put up your hand. I think we've got a question from the front row. Hi, Ed. Um, I'm Penny, and I'm a PhD student, and I teach data science students about the social side of big data. Um, and I want to know about your feelings about data and surveillance, because I'm writing an article at the moment about um, big data in higher education and how it's been used for supporting um, tracking where people are around buildings in higher education and um, supporting the border agency and immigration and stuff like that, making people feel like they're under surveillance. So a sort of big brother effect. Yeah. I think that's an area of real concern. I think that's quite different from when we're talking about it for healthcare, where there's, it's perhaps clearer or easier to demonstrate the, the public benefit from when we're talking about healthcare, um, whereas in surveillance it's perhaps less direct or, or is more debatable, more questionable. In relation to all of this, it's, the important thing is really um, transparency and openness about what we're doing and having public conversations around that because decisions are being made about the ways that data are used and for what purposes they're being used. But we need those decisions to be made 
by society, by the public, to know if it really is, do we have a social license to do that? Do we have public support to do that? Um, and I think there are very many areas where big data is being used, where we need to be having those conversations, where we need to be asking those questions. But, but also it strikes me that Facebook and Google and all that, it's just, I mean, it's not an original thought, but they're just so, it's so untransparent. The things you talked about, I mean, okay, the likes, dislike, mood-altering thing is a kind of infamous example, but we found with the Russian sort of uh, influence on the U.S. election, all of those things, it's just what they're doing and how they're doing it, it feels incredibly unregulated. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that's, that's a really important area because that's where... That's where people do get concerned. That's where public concern comes from when we feel like this isn't, we don't know what's happening. And then stories break and suddenly you think, wow, all this was happening. But actually, what else is happening? And there are big questions. And for your work, does GDPR, which is a new thing that's come in yeah. in, in Europe, help? I think in terms of these sorts of issues we're discussing now and, and giving people control over the data, I think it's, I think it's fabulous. I mean, I think people are still moaning about GDPR a lot as something that clogged up our inboxes for a few months, yeah. but actually it's, it's incredibly empowering and it gives people that chance to, to ask questions about hap- what's happening with their data to, and they don't get answers, then something can happen. You can take them to court and, and more people should be doing that. Okay, I think there's a question at the back and other people should put their hands up. Hello, what's your name? Oh, yeah, um, Alex, I was just wondering, because obviously you've got so much scope for people, you know, with the Russia um, elections, people can manipulate people's um, using big data so easily. Is, is, is big data sort of almost um, incompatible with democracy as it goes further and further on? If you're going to have, like, a democracy and, and you can manipulate people so easily by using these, like, metadata, what, what, what are your opinions on that, really? Okay. Is big data incompatible with democracy? I mean, that is a big question, but it's an important question. I don't think it's incompatible. I think we need to set up clear rules for how we deal with it, who has access to that data, what are they allowed to do with it. Big data can be a very, very powerful tool for democracy to make sure that everyone uh, lives as best as they can, that everyone has the same access to resources, to services, and so forth. I mean, there's a big social care crisis across the UK. Do you think your research and the research that's being done can help with that social care crisis? Absolutely, I think so, yes. Um, we're in touch with the Scottish Government, we're in touch with local health boards who are very, very interested in that kind of research that we're doing and are very interested in developing further research with together with us. Because it will tell them what, about the demand in their area? Yes, exactly that. There are very big differences between um, social groups, uh, for example, by neighbourhood deprivation, stuff like that. I think we don't even have good information right now on how many people are providing informal care and what kind of support they might need. So that I think there are a lot of gaps in the knowledge and that data could help. Which you could get from what, the census or...? It, it would be a first step and then maybe working together. That's what I alluded to yeah. earlier, working together to make the data even better, yes. Is big data incompatible with democracy, Vari? No, I think big data used well is very good for democracy and it depends who's who's in control of the data and who's making the decisions about how we use it. But if it's accessible and people can use it in an equitable way, it's, it's incredibly positive for democracy. The problems are where big data is being used in ways that we don't know how it's being used. So we don't know who it is that's seeing that data or what they're doing with it. And I think that's, that's the challenge and that's the problem. That, I guess that's the threat to democracy. But if, it's, if it becomes more equitable um, and people have more access to their own data, know what's happening with it, can use it in, in ways that, that are a benefit to themselves and to society, then it's, it's a real positive. Okay, any other questions? Yep. Hi, I'm Mike. Uh, I'm a software engineer in Edinburgh. And I just wanted to ask about your point about uh, profit being made sometimes for, from potentially census data or health data or whatever. I was wondering whether you think there's 
any scope for people to be compensated for data that they don't have any ability to opt out of, um, or if there's any way that we can kind of pass some of that profit back to the people who the data has been gathered from. It's a good question. It's basically like royalties. You should get, as an individual, you should get royalties for your data being used by Facebook or Google or whoever. Let's take a, let's take a bunch. Yep, there's one at the back. Um, hi, yeah, you've pretty much already touched on all of these themes already, but there's a, a wider conversation about the future of the NHS right now, and there are like some concerns around the outsourcing of healthcare to Virgin Healthcare and other groups. And is there a concern around outsourcing our healthcare to Google? Um, and is there a potential instead to kind of empower the NHS a bit more around making this data open and public for people to use, like Wikipedia and other things and models like that that are more collaborative? What was your name? Uh, Mark. <laughs> Mike, Mark, and question in the front here. Hello, um, my name's Kat, and concerns about, um, particularly in AI, about um, sort of reproducing human biases such as racism um, within that. And I'm wondering whether you um, come across that within big data or whether big data is actually a way of addressing that problem and whether you see the kind of actually addressing the issue of reproducing these biases um, as taken seriously within the profession and then how you would then deal with that to try and reduce that, those sort of issues. Really good question. So basically, question about royalties, question about outsourcing, and then a question about how it can be used to reproduce biases, racial biases. There's also there's this sort of totally bizarre thing, wasn't there, about that, was it one of the companies could detect your sexuality or something uh, on a sort of big database? I mean, pick out some of, you know, one or two of those. Okay. Um, well, first, in terms of royalties and 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 private sector but profit yeah. and they kind of go together um, I think that's the, the, the idea about royalties is a really interesting one and, and, and I'm quite interested in the idea of how you share the benefits of, of using data um, and so when we talk about private data or commercial data that absolutely makes sense that I mean, you can really monetize it in, 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 in that way but I think if we're talking about public sector data it's sort of it's a public good so maybe if we're talking about royalties or sharing the benefits that should be shared with the public service provider or fed back into the system rather than yeah. necessarily to individuals um, and the benefits that individuals receive are much more in terms of the improvements to health on a wider scale and, and, yeah. and, and the benefits to society as a result of that. And what about then the question about outsourcing? I mean, both the sort of cooperation potential of NHS data, but also the danger of, you know, yeah. Google taking over healthcare and all that. And, and, you know, we know now that sort of Google and Facebook have unlimited ambitions. Yeah. I mean, presumably this is part of their thing. They, you know, just like Virgin, they want to be into healthcare, I guess. Yeah, but I think what we need to remember is that when we talk about private sector companies or commercial organisations, we often focus on the giants. We focus on Google and we focus on Facebook. But there are many other private sector organisations, much smaller organisations, who are involved in, in health research or who are developing apps, developing artificial intelligence programmes. Um, and these are smaller organisations with different kinds of motivations and different kinds of interests. And we shouldn't just think about the the global giants, but actually think about all the different kinds of organizations that are involved. Um, and so in terms of outsourcing, I think what we need to be clear is that it's not about big companies to provide services instead of the NHS, but actually having organizations outside the NHS collaborating with the NHS and working as partners um, and strengthening the NHS through doing so. Sorry, is this on data you mean? Yeah, or in terms of, well, if we're talking about developing apps or developing artificial intelligence models or developing resources that could be used, those are resources which might be developed by a private company but could be used in partnership with the NHS in ways which respond to the demands and the needs of our current health service. And why could that not be done in-house by the NHS? Is it a question of resources? Is it a question of expertise? What? 
Yeah, possibly. I mean, government is sort of rubbish at this, isn't it? I mean, that's part of the problem. I mean, government is sort of rubbish at technology. They buy computer systems. They cost billions of pounds. You know, they don't work. All of that stuff. There's a bit of that, and I think also there's a there's a faster pace. So in the private sector, in, in um, big tech companies, small tech companies, they they have a certain momentum and a, and, a, and a faster pace to get things done. Yeah. Um, and I think that certainly helps. Is there anything you want to to add? There's the, the question? a question from the lady in the front yeah. that we haven't really addressed yet. Um, so I think a key thing with data of any kind is that, of course, it is produced in a certain society, um, and so therefore we might. To some degree, it shows certain biases. Um, when I'm, I'm German originally, when I first came to the UK and started filling out um, surveys, and I had to state my race, that was very bewildering for me because I've never been asked that in Germany. Right. Um, to the degree that I here have to say I'm white other just because I don't fit any of the categories yeah. is a bit weird for me. But so, yes, we have the social construction of the data in some ways. We, we need to make sense of it. And I think we can see that as it is constantly evolving with nowadays um, more and more questionnaires uh, asking your gender identity and offering more than two options, um, stuff like that. So, yes, um, we need to be very careful with that. And I think... Academic sources, government sources are, are very careful and they try to um, discuss how they phrase questions. In the private sector, I sometimes see surveys where I'm a little bit, oh, I wish they had phrased that differently. So we have a thing on the podcast, it's called the Jeffocracy, and it's very, very utopian. Uh, I, I'm installed as supreme leader, but I'm very hands-off. You know, I'd, I would just delegate a lot. If I put the two of you in charge of, sort of public health and data, day one, what do you do on the first morning? Remember, Jeff might be quite a detached boss for these yeah. purposes. He's going to be sort of working, out, working out whether he's got Sky TV and yeah, all that. Yeah, making sure the broadband is working. Yeah. So I'll be very busy, so it's, it's very much in your hands. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would want to do is to set up a, a public panel or a public deliberative process, a citizens' juries or other kind of deliberative approach, which would involve members of the public in decision-making about what we do. Because I think even with the best of intentions, if these decisions are being made by people working within the area of health informatics or working in the area of big data, artificial intelligence, it's a certain set of perspectives on the issues and a certain set of perspectives on what we should do. And there's also that there's that, that drive to keep doing more with the data. And actually, we need to have those questions about, well, it's not what can we do, it's actually what should we do and what should we not do. And those are the questions that we need the public to answer. So that would be, yeah, day one, that's what I would do. Sounds good. Anna? Uh, for me, there are two things. There, are, On the one hand, there is a lot of um, data collected all over the country that is collected in a very diffuse sort of manner. People locally identify we have a certain need for this quick report, so we're somehow raising some data. Um, and then people are put into place, uh, into the position to uh, collect this data that really don't know what they have to do here. I've uh, spoken with district nurses who are a bit like, oh, now I have to write the report, where do I get my data from? So I think a very important first measure would be to find a good way of unifying that so we've got data that is uh, comparable. Consistent, yeah. Consistent. And then a second big point is I see a big divide, sort of uh, non-communication to some degree happening between government bodies, academia, private sector. I think we should work way more together. Um, that would be really, really helpful. What do you reckon they've got the job? Okay, let's say big thank you to Vary Aitken and Anna Schneider. Thank you.
Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And please welcome to the stage to share her reasons to be cheerful and to mock Ed mercilessly, Aisha Hazarika. Thank you. Now we've got a special slide for you, Aisha. I'm hoping that. <laughs> now, it's, do you want to explain this slide, Aisha? I thought I'd get my retaliation in first. So, when I used to work for Ed, I used to help prepare him for Prime Minister's questions, which was always quite a stressful experience, yeah. as you can imagine. And I would try and give Ed some jokes. And this one time, I gave him this joke about hush puppies, and the joke was basically about Ken Clark. Uh, like uh, parking his tanks on David Cameron's lawns, but uh, you can see the joke's already not working. (laughs) (laughs) And Ken Clark used to wear hush puppies, so I was like, why don't you say to David Cameron, tell Ken Clark to get his hush puppies off my lawn. And Ed was a bit like, oh, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> oh, I've, got, I've got a really bad feeling about it, honestly. And I was like, no, trust me, it's going to absolutely rip it. You're going to be amazing, like Downing Street beckons. It was so, quite early on, wasn't it? It's like in the early days. Yeah, it was the early days. And so then Ed rises to his feet. It's the full house of Commons, and he goes, oh, just t- t- tell him to get his hush puppies off the lawns. <laughs> And there is literally tumbleweeds. <laughs> there is absolute silence. And so the next time, every time I try to suggest a slightly crap joke to Eddie, just look at me and be like, are oh, you sure two words, hosh puppies? But, but, but the, this joke then wasn't retired gracefully, was it? It sort of carried on. You then gave it to Harriet Harman. I just... Basically, she thought my delivery was so rubbish that the reason the joke hadn't worked wasn't because it was a rubbish joke, uh, but because I delivered it in a rubbish way, correct? I know. I sort of thought... If I just one more heave, just like one last yeah. try. I've got to make this joke work. It, it's it's now dead. This joke actually it's my opening gag in my set. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> what was your greatest triumph writing jokes, Fred? Uh... <laughs> yeah, she needed advance notice of that question. I think. To... <laughs> what we did, actually we did one on we had a good one on doctors. Do you remember David Cameron did this big thing? about how there were all these new doctors coming on stream and he tried to claim credit for it. And and we were, you stood up and said, do you know how long it takes to train a doctor? Seven years. That'll be a Labour victory. Thank you very much. Boom. Yeah, that was good. That was quite good. What will we just have some other good ones? I think chucking bread rolls. Yes, that was good. He said you're always going to be a student politician. And I said at least I wasn't wrecking restaurants and chucking bread rolls. Yeah, that was good. That, that was, was yours, good. basically. All of the good ones were no, yours. No, no, you had some good ones as well. <laughs> yeah. 
But basically, it was 130 PMQs, wasn't it? And it was pretty. Oh my god, it was so. It was pretty so hard stressful. going. Aisha's career has massively taken off since, basically. Talk, talk about his <laughs> mood on a, on a Wednesday. So I used to get in the. Ta- it was basically like a hostage situation. <laughs> I used to get in the taxi at half six with Ed, and you'd come and you'd be like, "Oh God, why are we doing this?" Like every week could be the same thing. You'd be like, "Oh God, just can we not call the speaker and just get it cancelled?" <laughs> It's like so awful. And then we'd go to this pret on the way to the House of Commons and we'd get coffee and the guy would basically serve Ed coffee and be like, good luck, good luck. And he'd be like, could you call the speaker and ask him to like, <laughs> you know, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this kind this of thing? It was news. just like, it was just like that poor man. And you've brought along some reasons to be cheerful? Yes, so I've got quite a few reasons to be cheerful. I'm very cheerful to be in Edinburgh because the climate is just delightful. London is horrific. And so I've decided Edinburgh has the best microclimate on the planet and everyone has to live in Edinburgh. London is so disgusting. Literally cats are trying to get themselves shaved at the moment. It is (laughs) like horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous. And you grew up, where you grew up in? I grew up in Coatbridge. And actually, weirdly, there was a lot of people in to see my show from Court Bridge, which that's was very weird. Um, and, uh, yeah, my dad was like a doctor in Court Bridge. It's so weird. All these people kind of say he was like the only Asian doctor. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, your dad was my doctor. It's so weird. It's like this kind of odd kind of connection thing. Would ever Ed ever get you to ring your dad with his symptoms? Yes. Definitely. That totally happened. Right. One time, the night before PMQs, Ed got a very bad throat. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It was and terrible. literally, it was like emergency. Mercy dashed around London. Every doctor was called in the land, basically. <laughs> Everyone was put on standby for Ed to do sort of PMQs. I had to, my dad was called. Dr. Hazarika was, was called. Lots of people were called. And I remember when in the morning and Ed was having to do steam inhalation with a pink, really manky pink towel that somebody found. And he was steaming his it head w- over this. And I was thinking, I bet the Tories are shitting themselves right now. <laughs> It went quite really, well, though. It, went, oddly it was one enough, of your best oddly ones, enough, actually. I know you sound surprised. Oddly enough, it went quite well. It did go quite well. But do you remember, so in the middle of the night, one of Ed's advisors was sent to some weird secret doctor who treated <laughs> opera singers who, who kind of like were in danger of losing their voice. Like literally. a backstreet throat specialist. Yeah. We got the hardest drugs known to man. Yeah, to, exactly. That's why hardest it went so well. Hardest drugs I've ever taken, yeah. <laughs> Um, and what are your other reasons to be cheerful? My other reason to be cheerful is it is amazing to see at the Fringe so many brilliant female stand-ups. And I think female comedy is really, really coming into its own. And I think one of the things that's brilliant about it is that women are kind of changing the way comedy is told. Because there was always a bit of a feeling that stand-up comedy was sort of like a white guy talking about sort of masturbating in Star Wars. Like that was basically yeah. stand-up comedy. Think, it's now okay. women talking about masturbation in Star yeah. Wars. And it's, fine. It's, and it's just great. It's just great to see a whole range of new new types of sort of ideas and, 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 and types of comedy out there. What other reasons to be cheerful? Um, yes, the other reason I'm very cheerful for is that, uh, this is a complete random one, carbohydrates. Because when you're in Edinburgh, you just get to eat as much carbohydrate as humanly possible. And just out there, if anybody literally wants to commit carbicide, there is something called a cheese mac toasty. Oh. It's macaroni cheese in a toasty. 
I mean, I know the data people are like thinking the diabetes is going to through through the roof, but it's a price worth paying. God, finally, bread and pasta I, together. I know, but it's great. It's so, it's what, they, and it's just so great because I hate all this like foodie, clean eating, all this kind of nonsense. And I'm staying at a hotel where the detox breakfast includes a battered sausage. <laughs> what is not to love about that? What do you that? think about me and the cheese mac toasty? Aisha, go on, give me the honest. <laughs> Give me the, give me the honest truth about this. Because the bacon sandwich went yeah, really well, yeah, didn't exactly. it? I mean, that went really, really well. Somebody was suggesting to be around I could do the sort of full collection. I think the cheese mac <laughs> toasty could be part of it. I had a horrific picture. It all falls out your mouth, so that would be a good that one. That doesn't we happen could, to me, We actually. could do a whole series of, like, difficult food. That could be a next challenge. Difficult food. For, sushi. We could try a bit of sushi. Linguini. All of that kind of stuff. <laughs> do you think? Maybe not. I don't think so. Now, we've got this bit we do in the show, which is where you get to save the world in 15 seconds. Uh, now, I know that sounds quite hard, but it comes from the old famous for 15 minutes thing. And basically, it's where you get to pitch a good idea to me, Jeff, and Aisha for the Jeffocracy, or for not the Jeffocracy, if that's not your taste, about what we should do to make the country better. And this is your chance to cheer everyone up, not just the people in the audience, but also uh, listening to the podcast. So... Who would like to begin? I propose that we nationalise Greggs. Nationalise Greggs. <laughs> what would the argument what against What is the nationalised Greggs thing? Where does it come from, the nationalised Greggs thing? Oh, is there already a campaign? I mean, it's a sort of definitely a sort of pork derivative product situation, which I think is not great for me, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> or me. <laughs> uh, uh, no, indeed. Uh, uh, um, Said the Muslim to the Jew. Where, 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 uh, Don't tell the mosque. Where, where, where's that come from then? People just love Greg's. I mean, who loves Greg's? And like, there's so much misery in the world. I think you're totally right. I think it's like the one thing. It's like the, it's like the jewel in the crown of British life right now because everything else is such a cesspit. So I think that's a great idea. Okay, and we should have it on trains. You know, when we nationalise the trains, they should only serve Greg's on the trains. Okay, so that's. Pl- Pledge number one is nationalised Greg's. We're going to try and get to the famous five pledges, I would say. Hiya. Um, I think we should have a designated fast walking lane, especially during the fringe along Princess Street and all major streets. Oh, fast walking lane. Yeah. Yeah. How do you have a fast walking lane, though? It could work like a cycle lane, but it has definitely has to be police. So like no phones out, no maps, just straight, like straight walking, looking where you're going. And would there be exits like at a motorway? Yeah, maybe you have have to indicate with your hand to see when you're coming off. That's good. I I mean, Edinburgh is such a fantastic city to get around, but I do agree that I'm a relatively fast walker. And you a fast walker? Yeah, except I've got really short legs. So when I sort of Ed, he'd be like, let's walk. And I'd be like literally trotting (laughs) behind him, which was not a very kind of high status Okay, I think we're doing well here. Nationalised Greg. Yeah, that's a Fast walking lane. Who's next? Excuse my voice, because I'm a bit sick. A free trip to... You're a bit stoned, did you say? No! Sorry. I'm a bit sick. Oh, a bit sick, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Jeff used to do a phone-in called Drunk or Stoned, believe it or not. uh, Sorry, I'm not saying you're stoned or drunk. Uh, uh, In a previous previous life. Um, Anyway, yes, sorry, carry on. Just a a free trip to the zoo for everyone once a year, because you you can see animals and get... A free trip to the zoo? I'm not in favour of a free trip to the zoo. Are we in favour of zoos? We've not banned zoos yet, have we? 
Well, I like, know there are problems around zoos. I'd like to hang out with ignore goats. them and just yeah. think about the cute animals. Yeah, I think I think a tree. Yeah. What, are you a zoo person? I mean, as long as they're giving out Greg's at the zoo, and then I'm 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 okay with that. Yeah. Are you you a zoo? Do you go to the zoo with Jean? Take my son to the zoo. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, Good yeah, free yeah, trip to the yeah. zoo. I think free we could, we're definitely in business. Yes, lady here. Um, so a sort of update to the speaking clock. You can just ring it up, and it's just a line that tells you it doesn't matter and it's going to be okay. Oh, that's oh, great! Oh, that is good. <laughs> Does a speaking clock still exist? I don't know. Should we try and ring it? Well, I think perhaps maybe. Yeah. Would well, you carry on? Uh, um, right. Okay. I'm, I, I think definitely you want something to keep calm and carry on. Line. Oh, come and on. The third stroke. Can... The time will be. Oh yeah. That's five, all. There we got. We, four. Oh, precisely. We might. We might in, go. go does it still exist? Yeah. Right, good. Uh, <laughs> bring back original recipe iron brew. Oh, yes! So what have they changed? Have they made it less sugary? Is it not made from girders? <laughs> They've reduced the sugar content dramatically. And Is it that tastes right? far too different. <laughs> Are you an iron brew woman, Aisha? Oh, I love iron brew. Oh, you're just saying I, that to no, pander to no, the audience. Come on. It is the, Aisha, we need honesty in modern it politics. Is, it's true. It's the best hangover cure. It is the best. And it's actually, it's not just sugar. It's, it's got a lot of caffeine in it as well. But I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think it's the nanny state gone mad. We want our iron brew. I want to get diabetes the minute I basically have about one sip of, of iron brew. I want my teeth Why to start Why did you melting. never like offer me iron brew when I was leader? Because you, gonna be so a, different. you were always on a weird health kick. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Does anybody have iron brew with them? Ed could have it now. Oh, God, okay, maybe. No, no it's not original recipe, so I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> there is somebody with some up there. Uh, but it wouldn't be original recipe. It looks like recipe. a bottle of urine. Oh, someone actually has got a can of iron brew. I don't, think you, should, Jeff, I don't oh. think you should say it looks like a bottle of urine. Good I think for that you. Is culturally, I think that's culturally insensitive. Uh, who, there was, there were, was another hand, wasn't there? Oh, yes, over yeah, there. Oh, Emma, just on the, on the, up there. I'd like to see a compulsory well-being slash meditation opportunity for all politicians in government on a daily basis before they get angry with each other. So that's like me and like, Jacob Rees-Mogg in, in compulsory meditation. Yeah. In Westminster, like either put down your yoga mats or just cross your legs on your benches. Yeah. Or we'll have five to ten minutes minimum broadcast on World BBC. It would make the world such a better place. To be fair, them lying down meditating might be more interesting than what actually happens in the chamber. Are you a meditator? Uh, I try, but I used to work in civil service as well, so I think it would also help civil servants. So. What, what department, no, it, now it, I'm it, asking, it what department did you work department in? Department of Health. Oh. And before, there was no, there was no before, meditation classes at the Department of Health? No, there was yoga in Westminster Gym. I used to go yoga with Jack Straw, actually. I mean... You know, I so like funny. Jack Everyone. Straw, but I'm really not sure about yoga with Jack Straw. <laughs> he was I mean, pretty I'm good. Not sure. He was good. I would I, watch that. I used to go to the gym at the Westminster. Everybody has got a Jack Straw gym story. <laughs> I used to do spinning with Jack Straw, and I'll tell you what, you do not want to be behind Jack Straw <laughs> in a spinning class because he really goes for it. Maybe Zumba instead. That might be more appropriate. Just Maybe so what, sorry? Zumba with Zumba. Jack Straw. Zumba with Jack Straw. No, in, in the Houses of Parliament, just to loosen everyone up I mean, and just I mean, get rid of some adrenaline and stuff I mean, maybe like we've got a new programme for the sort of Dave channel, Yoga with Jack Straw. Yeah. Uh, do you think? No. No. But I think the meditation... Can we take one more? Jeff's yeah, looking anxiously because we're going over time. Uh, we'll go one more. I think we should make a concession to the anti-immigration people by deporting Boris Johnson. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is obviously... That, that, is obviously a popular, that is obviously a popular choice. Here's, here's what we're going to do with those ideas. We're going to get a huge stone... Yeah. And then carve them 
into the stoners' pledges. What, what do you think of that idea? The, the trouble is that hasn't been tried since Moses. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that will quite work. You weren't, you weren't involved in the Ed Stone, I were you? I am so relieved. I was too busy on the pink bus, so I, I've got, like, <laughs> you know, I'm back to rights you've, on that as well, to be you've honest. Got your own, you've got your own declaration, mate. Thank you. Aisha Hazarika. So we should thank our brilliant audience. Give yourself a big round of applause, brilliant audience. We should thank a uh, big round of applause for Murray, Aitken and Anna Schneider, our guests. And to the wonderful Aisha Hazarika. I think we should thank, honestly, there's an absolutely brilliant staff here at the Pleasance Grand who work like all day, every day, 24 hours there. I met a great guy called Sean uh, earlier on. He was really keen for a selfie with me, which is why I mention it. Uh, you, you mentioned it because he complimented your second conference speech. He was saying how much he yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So now you feel the need to mention him on stage. I do, but I mean, I think it's a generous thing to do. Anyway, big round of applause for the, all of the hard work for the people at the Pleasance Grand. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Thank you very much, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.